I'm thankful for the chance to, to bring God's word uh, to us. If you were in Sunday school this morning, you're going to hear a lot of the same things. And that's a good thing. And hopefully that'll nail things even deeper into our, our soul and uh, be an encouragement to us this morning. Well, 12 years ago, Catherine, my wife, and I had the opportunity and the privilege to go on a mission trip to Nairobi, Kenya. And we were there with a mission team uh, helping a pastor who had planted a church in the slums of Kibera. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with Kibera, but it's one of the largest slum communities in the world. It's basically about one square mile with over, over a million inhabitants. We've got a picture. You can see the picture better back there, but that's all right. Um, but basically, it's a bunch of tin huts piled on top of each other. Some of the homes are actually just um, tarps. Um, but it was quite uh, the sight to see. Even as we walked up there, you could just smell and see the running sewage coming down the hill. It was not a place that you'd want to live. And you can imagine the trials that people that live in these communities went through. Uh, the pastor we were working with said that a third of all the children we were working with were either infected with HIV or AIDS. Um, the place was, you know, rampant with disease and violence. Um, you can imagine there was poor, the kids, there wasn't many um, resources for education. And yet we had the opportunity to go and spend a week with this church and with these kids. So we went in on Sunday, and in the middle of that whole community, there's a church that he planted, and we were able to worship with them. And then after that, take the kids out into the countryside with all this land, and we did a camp for them for a week. And we you know, taught them the Bible, which was amazing. The kids would sit there for like four or five different sessions and listen to like an hour talk at a time. And we played games and, and did all kinds of things. One of my responsibilities was the kids who actually didn't wake up before me. Most of them did. But the rest of them, I would wake them up and take all the kids for a one or two mile run on the African countryside. And I was probably the most scared because I knew a lion was going to come around the corner at any time. But these kids were resilient. Most of them didn't even have shoes, and they're running on rocky roads. Um, and this is kids from five years old through, through high schoolers. But it was a great experience for Catherine and I. And I want to ask you, whose perspective of life do you think changed the most? Was it our mission team, or was it the kids at the camp by us showing up? Well, if you've been on a mission trip, you know the answer is probably our perspective. And I think that is true. My perspective was greatly impacted as I saw the joy in these kids, knowing what all these kids had gone through, living in the conditions that they had lived in, and yet that week we spent with them, their joy just was, was apparent in everything that they did. And their ability and their hunger to want to memorize Scripture and know Scripture was amazing. And I'm not just saying that now. Catherine and I... Um, yeah, we're just amazed by that. And we also felt bad because we'd have a full, long day, and uh, early in the morning, it would be like 4.30 or 5, and we'd start hearing these noises. And there was a lot of the teenage kids gathering to sing praises to God. And Catherine and I are like, oh, couldn't they just wait one more hour to do this? But we, um, we were just amazed. And there's even one kid, this vivacious kid, who's a good little athlete, and he was so cute, and one of the uh, people on our team um, asked the kids, 
can I just bring you back to America to show you to my family? She made some offhand comment. He said, in his um, broken English, but they all, he, they all spoke English pretty well, um, you know, I'd love to meet your family, but I don't want to live in America. Y'all look so stressed and so busy and are so consumed with stuff. And there's a lot more we could say about that idea or whatever. But I, I share that just to say I was amazed at their perspective in life through all that they had been through. Um, they truly had, as we'll look at in, our, in the sermon today and in our passage, a resurrected perspective on life. And so our passage today is James 1. And uh, the first verse tells us that James is writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. These were Christians, mostly Jew Jews, who lived in Jerusalem, but were scattered because of persecution. After the stoning of Stephen, who was the first martyr, persecution was ramped up in Jerusalem. Acts 8 tells us that there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering, the ho and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And as you read on in Acts, um, many were also killed. There was great persecution. The Christians were scattered and were basically refugees, um, which God actually used to allow the gospel to go forth into Samaria, um, part of God's plan of the mission going forth. Um, but here we find, this is who James is talking to, these Christians who had seen People die under persecution, been dragged out of homes. They had been through, you can imagine the trials that even that persecution led to. And here James, with a pastoral heart to these people who are struggling, this is probably about 7 to 12 years after that initial persecution, James is writing to them, um, and it's his pastoral words. And he's very direct. James is a very direct book, um, just kind of giving quick, straightforward words of wisdom to a people who are struggling, a people who are going under persecution, who are wondering, is it still worth it to be, continue to be true to Christ? Um, in the face of persecution, in the face of a cultural um, pressures that were around them, and he's saying, be faithful. And you can imagine, in the midst of their suffering um, and being refugees, the anxiety about the future, uh, and James is writing to them because there had become divisions within the church. There had uh, been gossip. And this is often what happens when we go through trials. And yet James speaks to them. And I think we should also take note. Even as a church, in a time of transition, what does James have to say to us? I do want, before we get into our points, who was James? Well, James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, who's writing now to the church scattered from Jerusalem, um, but he was also the half-brother of Jesus. Yet, James, during Jesus' whole earthly ministry, thought that Jesus was out of his mind. Mark 3 actually says his family thought he was crazy, and they did not believe in Jesus. Ty, if Sam came to you and said, I'm the Son of God, would you think Sam had lost his mind? Yes, and James thought, his, I know, this is my brother. He's, and the things that he's saying, he has lost his mind. They were embarrassed by it. And yet something changed to where James is now in the midst of great persecution. The stakes are high, and this is not somebody who was naive and was just going along with the religious crowd. He actually thought it was a joke, and now he's 
speaking these words of hope in the midst of great persecution, what happens? Well, 1 Corinthians 15 says that the resurrected Lord, Jesus himself, after he had died on the cross and rose, he went and, and James saw him. He had an encounter with the resurrected Lord, and that changed everything. He realized, oh my goodness, everything my brother said was true. He is who he said he is. He is wisdom from above. And it totally changed James's perspective on all of life. And from that perspective now that James is speaking uh, to the church scattered. Now, let me show you. You've probably seen this image before. But what do you see? Who sees a young girl? Raise your hand. Who, who sees the other thing? Like an old maid. I see the old maid. Maybe that's because I'm a, can be a half cup, half empty person. I don't know. But you see the, the young lady, her nose is, wait, her nose is, well, up. That's the, the eye of the old maid would be the ear of the young lady. It's hard for me, once I see the old maid, I cannot even see the young, the young woman. But they're both there. They're both there. The chin is the nose. The chin of the young woman is the nose of the old maid. All right, I'll let you see it, and I'm going to take it off because you're going to keep being fixated on, on that. Um, but for me, it, ta it takes a while to see the same picture, to be able to see that picture. But for James, his, the way he saw his circumstances totally changed once he actually saw the resurrected Lord. And so what did he want to tell Christians going through persecution from this resurrected perspective? And actually, James has three main themes which he goes through in his introduction. And what we just read is the introduction. Actually, all of chapter 1 is an introduction where he kind of repeats these two themes twice. But James, from his resurrected perspective, in the midst of our, our trial, reminds us um, of God's purpose. So we have a perspective of purpose. He reminds us of where true wisdom is found. And he reminds us of what a life of faith looks like. Purpose, wisdom, faith. Now trials, these, these people were, had gone through much, many trials in the past and they were still struggling. Um, and we can imagine, just like us, in our life situations, when we go through trials, can it, can it be so hard to see past our trials or around our trials? I know just a simple thing, like a week when I have back pain, all I can think about in every conversation or the work I'm doing is my back hurting. And I see everything through that. And those of you who have been through great trials, it's hard to see anything not through that lens. And James is not saying, don't be present in those trials, and that we don't have to do something about those trials, but he says there's a greater perspective. Um, there's a resurrected perspective that we can have. And so in verse 2 he says, Count it all joy, my brothers. Count it all joy, Christians, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Here James is reminding us that in our trials, God is purposely using them for our maturity, and he's using every one of your trials for your ultimate Good. I think 
Most of us here who've been in the church would raise our hands, say, I believe that theologically, that's true, I'm on board. But this past week, did we really see the events of our life through that lens? Mark, I don't know what happened in your life on Monday, but did you see the things that happened in your life on Monday through the lens that God was uh, using those to draw you closer to him, to make you more into the image of your son? Emma. Emma, you have done great in soccer, but guess what? We lost another game last week. Actually, we hadn't won a game all year. Um, And that is not Emma's fault. That's probably more a result of her coach. But, Emma, and I need to ask myself the same question. Did we even see another loss as an invitation um, to drawing near to God? That God could even use those losses uh, to mature us. And he uses the little things and the great things. And we're familiar with the verse, many of us, in Romans 8, 28 through 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things, good and bad, all things, work together for good. Not that they're good in and of themselves, but that the ultimate purpose is good. He he works all things together for good for those who are called who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined for the purpose of being conformed into the image of his Son. Malachi 3.2 says that the Lord is like a refiner's fire. You may have heard the um, analogous uh, story, I I think it's a made-up story, but of the woman who went in and, and saw a blacksmith doing his work, and he was really busy, and there was like iron and different stuff everywhere that he needed to get to. But he was over um, by the fire with this one iron, and he was intently just fixated on it. And she's like, why don't you just let me hold it or put it down, and you can go work on everything else? And he said, no. If I just leave this iron in the fire, um, you don't know, first of all, where it needs to go. I know the exact place in the fire it needs to be. And I need to be right with it. So I know when it's at the right time, I can move it to the right place. And uh, she was amazed by that. And then she said, well, when do you know when to take it out? And as the story goes, when I take it out, I know it's done when I can see my image in it. When I can see my image in it. Now, that's a story, but it's bringing out the the point um, that that the uh, blacksmith has to tenderly care and be with the iron in the midst of the heat. And here, James is reminding these Christians going through trials that God is intentionally in the trials with you, and he's with you for a purpose. And that's to draw you near to him and make you more into the image of his son. And that's a hard thing to hear, because I don't like the fact that God brings us into trials. Mark this morning said, I pray that I want to know God more, but there's a little hesitation there, because... That might mean there's a trial that God might have to take me through to do his work in my life. And yet in the midst of that, I want us to remember that God's just not some far-off God just putting us on in trials distant. No, he's a God who's so near that he came in the person of Jesus Christ and went through the ultimate trial. That he went to the trial of taking God's wrath upon himself, Jesus Christ, on the cross. So then in the midst of our trials, we know this is not God's wrath. This is not God out to get me, but God promises I'm with you in it to accomplish 
my good purpose, my refining purpose um, that we so badly need. Now, I do want to bring out a quick few truths from this um, passage, or in verse 2, where it says, Consider it all joy when you face trials of various kinds, because often that can be misunderstood. And so James is not saying consider everything in your life a joy. God is not saying that everything, um, every trial and suffering is a good thing. You know, actually, the Christian worldview and the Bible itself actually gives us the basis to call evil, evil, to call sin, sin, to call lies, lies, to call bad, bad. And so we don't actually look at something and say, oh, it's okay, it's all, it's all good. No, we can call it evil. And he's also not saying, oh, just put on a happy face and bear through it. No, the Bible actually invites us to lament sad um, things that are bad and sad and that aren't the way they ought to be but we lament with joy because God's with us in it. It's not the end of the story. There's a resurrected perspective. I also want to warn us that, that James isn't here saying, we need to go looking for suffering, because the more suffering and trials I can bring into life, the more God's going to perfect me. That's not what he's calling us to. Now, he does call us to sacrifice and love, right? But he's not saying we aspire just to make ourselves miserable, um, um, but he's actually saying, as God brings trials, and as trials come into our life, see that God, that refiner, is there with us. And it's not purposeless. Nothing that God allows through his hands, through the Father's hands, that comes into our life is without purpose. It goes through his hands, and he uses it to mold and to be there with us to accomplish his good purposes. A couple other real quick things from that verse. He says, consider. Sometimes it doesn't, feel, it doesn't feel joyous, but consider, this is a perspective. This is setting our eyes, giving us a different perspective um, with how we're going to see each trial that comes in our life. And then he does say when. Every one of us has different trials, various trials, some very significant, some more minor, but all of them, when we are in those trials, and all of us might be in a really serious one right now. We might be about to go into one. We might be just coming out of one. Um, but when we're there, know that this is true. And hey, trials aren't fun. But I want us to know that God isn't up there um, distant, bringing these trials into our life. He's actually, with your trials, God's um, moving in them and even bringing them to do a good work in your life. Kids, who looks forward to tests every week? Emma, do you love test day? No? <laughs> I don't see anybody raising their hand. Okay. Um, do your teachers give you tests because they just want to sit, um, say, Knox, I'm going to get him, I'm going to give him a test, and I'm going to show him how stupid he is. No, <laughs> that is not the point of tests. A good teacher brings tests to their students because they care for them. They want them to mature and to grow and to be able to, to, to be built up to actually have purpose in this life. And so God, likewise, uses our trials. And so there's a challenge and encouragement. The challenge is don't waste your trials. We all have trials in our life. Don't waste them. These are an opportunity to grow, to know God more. And then there's an encouragement. If you are a Christian, God's making a promise here that he will not waste your trial. So there's a challenge and encouragement. So one of my applications for the sermon 
is I want you, with someone in your life group or prayer triad or another Christian here, I want you this week or in the next couple weeks to share a trial, to name it. This is a true trial that I'm going through. And I want you to name what's hard about that trial. And then I want you to try to say, you don't, we don't know why God allows some of these trials, but how might that trial be maturing you? How might that trial be maturing you? And so God says in our trials, with a resurrected perspective, we can know that there is good purpose, that God is there um, to conform us into the image of his son. But you know what trials also do? They also show how much we don't know and how much we need wisdom from above. And so James reminds us here in verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Do you agree with this statement that our trials often reveal our lack of knowledge or our lack of wisdom and our need for wisdom? But wisdom is actually key to growing into maturity. So we need to ask, well, what is wisdom? What's the wisdom that James is speaking of? And there's many ways to explain it. We can say wisdom is applying God's truth and his ways into the details of our life, into our decisions, into our relationships, into our work. One commentator says, though, that wisdom is the endowment of the heart and the mind, which is needed for right conduct in life. It's just not a mental thing. A lot of times we use the word wisdom and think of it more like practical expertise um, or life experience or a lot of knowledge. Um, but that is not the way. Yes, there's common grace wisdom. Like you can kind of know how the world works and how business works and be a, a wise businessman. But James is actually talking about something uh, more here. It's like Paul, when he's talking to the first Corinthians, or sorry, when he's talking to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, he says that the wisdom of God confounds the wisdom of this world. Uh, because resurrection wisdom, the wisdom that James is talking about, is found in the person, a person, Jesus Christ, and in his truth. Actually, this wisdom can't be found but by repentance, by turning from ourselves and our own ways and looking to Christ. That's where this wisdom is found. So it's a knowledge of truth, but this wisdom can't just be a knowledge of truth. It has to have a heart, a heart that's led by the Spirit and a will that's willing to surrender your life and apply God's truth to work out salvation in all areas of your life. Over time, over day by day, we grow in wisdom as we're led by the Spirit. It's interesting because when I think of wisdom, it's not, I usually think of it even as uh, doing this or doing, uh, maybe applying truth, and it is that, but it's interesting to hear how James talks about wisdom from above in James 3. Listen to this. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. What does that sound like? A lot of the fruits of the Spirit. That wisdom comes by walking in the Spirit in God's truth. True wisdom 
comes from a mind committed to God's truth, a heart tender to the things of God, and willing to submit your will to God's. And as I was kind of reflecting on that, I was thinking, man, what are some of the trials in my life, and how do I usually respond? Well, when trials come into my life, I usually find myself more selfish, more harsh to my children and other people that make life's already hard, and now you're making it harder, responding harshly, seeking comfort. That's a time where it's easy to fall into temptation. And yet, just as Jesus in his trial in the wilderness, Satan came and tempted him, Jesus, who is wisdom from above, he responded with God's truth in a heart that was bent to trusting his Father. And so, um, in our trials, we need to seek wisdom. Our trials actually make us say, we gotta look, I gotta look somewhere outside of myself. Are we gonna look to the world or am I gonna look to wisdom above? Now, there's a few people that are a little overconfident coming to church today. You might see them. They have a black shirt, maybe a red shirt, with these little wolf pack symbols on them. If you follow college football, you know that NC State beat Clemson yesterday, which is my school. And now Clemson is 4-4. Four and four. It's not good. Um, not good at all. Um, and everybody is on Davo Sweeney, the coach's case. You got to do something. It's obvious that you don't have the answers. You need to go, and everyone has their own different things. You need to go to the transfer portal. You need all new assistant coaches. And I don't, I don't have the answer for that. But in the college football world, it's through this trial that Clemson's going through. It's apparent. You need, we need some wisdom from outside. But here, James is saying, yes, we have a place to run. Run to Jesus. Run to his word. Run to his community to do life. We need wisdom from one another as the Spirit's working in our lives. And don't miss what James is saying. God is willing and eager to give wisdom in the midst of our trials. And so my, I'll add to that challenge. I want you to talk to somebody about a trial you're going through and how God might be maturing you through it. I want you to also share where do you need wisdom? And together, either ask for prayer or go to God's word together. Um, but we need wisdom in the midst of our trials. We need wisdom and we need to be reminded of God's purpose. And then lastly, we need a perspective of faith. Verse 9, James says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. A resurrected perspective um, can turn things upside down. James here says, the poor are rich and the rich are poor. To the poor, to those who were financially poor, but also to those in low circumstances, he says, you must, in your poverty, boast about who you are in Christ. Do you not realize what is truer than true about you? You belong to the king of the universe. You have every spiritual blessing in him. You are forgiven. You will inherit the new heavens, and the new earth, you've got to be fixated on that. That is how you live in the midst of your circumstances with hope and with purpose and joy because you are rich in Christ. I remember um, when I think I was five or six years old, we lived around Clemson. We moved actually here to Monroe for a couple months. My dad had lost his job. I, 
you know, I'm a kid, so I can't, I'm not sure of all the financial situations, but I knew things were tight and we were struggling. And my mom started going up to the um, courthouse and started researching about the Belk family. Because we're the Belks, the Belks are from the Charlotte area. And uh, she kind of wanted to know, how does this whole family tree thing work out? And in the midst of our struggle, I think we we're all deep down hoping that maybe we'll find out that we were the Belks that they forgot to compensate for all the success of the, the, the department store. Uh, and then, anyway, my mom did all this research, and anyway, basically we just found out our family tree, and no, there was no financial rewards we were missing out on. Um, <laughs> but I did have to memorize my whole family tree going back to John Belk in 1735, who came over from England, and anyway, I won't, I'll spare y'all going through the whole family tree. But man, we were hoping that in, in our struggle, the Belk name would bring riches. But what actually James is saying to the Christians struggling and going through these trials is you are rich. Do you not see it? How good God is to you in Christ Jesus. And that's what those kids, what I was amazed about, like some of the, we, were, we taught through 1 John, and uh, I won't go into the details of the stories, but I was amazed by how much the kids clung to, yeah, that is true. We're going to live in the new heavens and new earth. Jesus loves us and is with us in our struggle. And there was this one kid who was in his upper, I, mean, like, I guess he was in his upper 20s, and he was crippled. He had a bad limp with a cane, uh, and this was from one of the diseases that he acquired as a kid. But he actually was able to get an education, and he was able to actually get out of that situation in the slums uh, and got a really good job and uh, had made it out of his current situation. And yet he had chosen to come back and to work with that pastor because he knew that, um, that I was made rich in Christ. And these kids need to know the hope of Jesus Christ, that there is a better perspective than the perspective they see every day of pure chaos in their worlds. Um, he realized that the, the poor indeed are rich in Christ. But to the rich, James says here, is we need, and we, at some level, all of us, I and mean, we're like top 1% of the world financially, we need to boast in our humiliation. Whether it's just good, good circumstances or whatever else, he says, you need a gospel perspective, and that gospel perspective is to remember that you are a sinner saved by grace that everything you have is a result of God's provision. And he warns them, just like Jesus in the Sermon on the Plains in Luke, he says, Woe, woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. So easy in our trials, we can put our hopes in our positive circumstances or in our money and look to those things um, to be what makes us feel okay. And Jesus here is not saying that wealth is is bad. Wealth can be a huge blessing and a resource, and we can thank God for them. But Jesus says, whoa, be careful, because it's so easy for us to put our hope in our good circumstances, in our finances, in our bank account, in that job promotion. This circumstance is hard, but if I could only get that next job, or if that girl would only like me, or whatever that positive situation is, then life would be good. He says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't put your hope there. That is not um, going to last. He actually says, your riches, do you not realize life is but a, but a mist? It's all going to be gone. You're really going to put the hope of your life in those things? There's a better, there's a resurrected perspective, James is saying. And it actually 
gives us the best things. It reminds us of God's truth, His love, His peace, and the hope that we can have in Him. And when we have those things, then we can move in our circumstances not dominated. They're not, not dominated by them. Our circumstances are not the last word. Actually, the gospel frees us up to be grace-filled stewards in our good, situa- sorry, good circumstances and to be joy and hope-filled in our bad ones. And so one last thing. I told you to talk to your friend about the trial, about how God might be maturing you through it and where you need wisdom. And also, talk about where does the gospel raise you up in that circumstance? And where do you need the gospel truths to keep you humble? Uh, Catherine's sister, Elizabeth, sent out a text to the whole family this week, and she named everyone in the family and all the in different ways that we should give thanks for God's blessings in our life. And it was really sweet, and it was a great reminder. And in a lot of ways, it was a reminder of what Paul's saying here, that we need to be reminded of our humiliation, the fact that she was saying, don't you see all these things came from God? Let's give thanks. And in that same token, I started thinking, well, where can I actually boast in the riches where God has met me in trials? And I even thought of the trial our church is going through in the last year and a half. It's a trial. It's an obstacle. It's, we've been without a head pastor. And personally for me, um, it's meant more challenges. Being on the, um, what do we call it, pastoral search committee. You know, it's been more on the session. There's been more um, things to do. Uh, and I won't go into uh, everything, but as I look back and was just journaling down, I feel like God has used that struggle to grow me, to make me realize how much I need wisdom from above and not my own wisdom, how much God is actually doing something in our midst. When, yeah, we would love a beautiful building, we would love all these things, but God's more committed to us and to our hearts and to conforming us into his own image, to giving us what's truly good. And that's good news. And that's the, that's the news James is trying to remind the Christians. All right, last thing. Um, Judah, what do you see right there? All right, now put these glasses on. <laughs> now what do you see? You see a light with a heart on it. All right, give it to your mom. <laughs> Jan, what do you see? <laughs> you see the heart. All right, it's a little example but the perspective does change everything. James is saying, don't you see, the Lord is risen. There is resurrection hope. Don't lose sight of that in your trials. And let's think this week, as we go into this week, how how are you going to see your trials this week? In self-sufficiency? In thinking, how am I just going to deal with this without a a resurrected perspective? Or are we going to look and see, yeah, God has good purposes in this, and I need to go to him for wisdom, and I can boast in the gospel because I am in Christ. And we need to remind one another of that. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Um, the reality is life is hard, and there's unspeakable sadness that even many in this room have been through. And yet... Lord, I know there was unspeakable sadness that so many of the Christians who um, had to scatter went through. 
And yet, Lord, you remind us um, that these struggles are not the end of the story, but there's a, a resurrection hope. Lord, thank you um, that you have good purposes for our life. Thank you that we're not left alone and that you promise to give us wisdom and help us to remember that we are rich in you. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.